Would you pray with me, please? Father, we pray that the reality of what we just sang would become an even greater reality in our hearts when we leave this morning than it was when we walked in. Father, this part of the service where we come together as a, prayer, as a congregation in prayer to turn our attention to the world in which we live and the other churches with whom we work and your work in our own church, we recognize that this is all because of your wonderful name. And God, I'm profoundly thankful for that this morning. We think this um, holiday season of those in our community, it's especially those who are uh, dealing with economic hardship right now, either out of work or perhaps the working poor. It's a joy to see so many of your people in this church um, delight to make the shelves out there in the atrium start to fill up with food for other people. Uh, what, a, what a joy and what a privilege. And we pray that you would really provide a way for those in our community, Hillsborough and Beaverton, uh, who are without homes or without steady work this holiday season to find the food and the shelter that they need. And we pray that even through our efforts as a church to bless through the giving of this food and other needs of people that we know about in our own lives, God, that you would use us and the members of this church to help those who are really struggling in our community find that there is hope and there is life beyond even just the next meal, but enough hope and life to even provide the next meal. So Father, we pray that you would touch those who are in special need this morning. And as we think about working poor in the world that we live in, God, I I want to pray this morning for the nation, the faraway nation of Saudi Arabia, uh, a kingdom that is probably one of the most anti-gospel places on this planet, a place where I just read this week as the only country in the world without a church building. That's a shock to me, but it's at one level not a surprise, knowing that everybody there is expected to be Muslim, and anybody who departs from that is not tolerated either socially or politically. Father, so many of the people in that nation are, uh, that very wealthy nation, are imported foreign workers from India, China, and other places like that, and it is often these poor foreigners who are the most likely to be Christians and find their ability to worship you curtailed severely while they're in that nation. And Father, there are also increasing numbers of Saudi converts who have to hide their Christian faith, often from their own families, for fear of what may happen to them if they do not recant their faith in you. And this often leaves them out of touch with other Christians. God, I stand here in a room with a few hundred other believers and find incredible joy and energy in that. And my heart breaks for every Saudi woman who can't even tell her husband that she has become a Christian for fear of reprisals. And so we pray for your people of faith in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia this morning for their boldness. We pray that you would help them to find other believers and find great comfort and joy in one another's company and that you would make the gospel great in the kingdom today. Father, much closer to home, we pray that you would make the gospel great in our community through this church and other churches that we are in fellowship with. I want to pray especially this morning for Ascension Presbyterian Church in Hillsborough and Pastor Eric as they gather and worship you right now as well. I pray that the gospel and the wonderful name of Jesus would light Eric as he preaches this morning and would light a fire in the hearts of the members of that church and that you would use them to impact other people in Hillsborough to see you for who you are, the greatest hope of life that there is. And God, we finally want to pray that same prayer for ourselves as a church, that this would not just be a place, that Harvest Community Church would not just be a place that, that we build, a place that we enjoy, a place that does things that matter to us, but a place that you build, that you would not just be the Lord of this church in principle or on paper, but in reality, and that through us in these holiday seasons, Father, that, that we would re receive no greater joy 
than the joy of being in your presence. God, even as we look at the thankful things that we have with Thanksgiving coming up in a couple of weeks, the food, the jobs, the families, the so many good things you have given us to enjoy, even as we've dealt with hardship, there are so many blessings that you have given us. And yet, Father, even as we as a church thank you for those blessings, I pray that you would help us to love the blesser more than the blessing, the giver even more than the gift. Would you increase our love for the wonderful name of Jesus? that it would be very easy to live sacrificially for you because the greatest thing that we have could never be taken away. And so, Father, I pray that from our joy in your supremacy, you would make your name known this holiday season. We ask that you would do that in our midst for your glory. In the matchless name of Jesus, we all pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. As Drake mentioned a moment ago, we are starting a new series this morning in the New Testament book of Galatians. And I can't think of a more fitting way to start uh, a study of the book of Galatians than to remind, uh, reflect on the very first time I ever drank coffee. Bear with me, there's a connection. Um, <clears throat> at least I hope so. Uh, it was the single most bitter and vile thing I think I had ever tasted in my life, but, it was just black coffee, but I could not stop drinking it. Gulping it, in fact. So there was a story behind that. I may have told you, uh, some of you before, that I was probably in, in junior high at this time, maybe late elementary school, I don't know, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, something like that. My father and I decided it would be a great idea, which means my dad decided, and I just went along with it because I didn't know any better, to uh, take a father-son trip to Death Valley, California in the summertime. So that's what we did because that's how we roll, Okay. And we were actually driving in Death Valley. We were in the middle of nowhere, going from somewhere to somewhere. But we were on this two-lane highway, literally in the middle of nowhere. There's just desert sand dunes on both sides of the highway for miles and miles. And then off in the distance, there were just mountains. That was like all we could see. And the morning was moving on. And it was hot, but it wasn't crazy hot yet. And being the uh, squirrely young boy that I was, I had been in the car for a while and managed somehow to talk my dad into pulling over so we could just get out and like see the sand dunes. I didn't really know what we were going to do. Um, but I talked dad into doing that. And so we stopped. And of course, being guys, you can't not have a purpose for very long. So as we're standing next to the car, I see off in the distance, one huge sand dune. It's like probably three times bigger than all the other sand dunes around it. It's like a little sand mountain out there. And it looks like, I mean, I don't know, like we could walk there quarter mile, half mile at the most, maybe you just go over a couple little ridges of sand dunes and we'd be there. We could climb to the top and see all around. Wouldn't that be cool? Of course it would. So off we went. Now, mind you, there's no water anywhere. We didn't even have water in the car. We definitely didn't have any with us. We had like jeans and t-shirts and sneakers and off we went. Um, well, oddly enough, it got hotter, which was kind of funny. Uh, as we went and we noticed like we'd get over those two or three ridges of sand dunes and then you get to the top of the next one and that big one was like a little bit bigger, but not as much bigger as it should have been. And so we realized it was a little further away than we thought, but we kept going. And partway through, I think my dad even got a little nervous at some point, like the rational side of him kicked in. But, you know, I managed to talk him into continuing. Like, we, we got to make it now. I got to get to the top of this thing. So we did. And eventually, we actually got to this thing and climbed up it. One of our great family photo album pictures is me kind of sitting on the, the blade of the sand dune, you know, where two sides come up, and I'm walking up this ridge, and I've got like one leg going down one side and one going out the other side halfway up. And we're like, yeah, we're going to get to the top. And we made it to the top, and it was 
awesome. You could see around for miles in all directions. It was really, really cool. And so we're doing this 360 panorama until you turn right back around toward the highway where the car was. And it was a lot smaller than it should have been. Like, a lot smaller. Like, it was this tiny little bright blue speck glimmering in the sun. And by now, of course, there's all this just heavy shimmering from all the heat that's coming up. I mean, the Southern California desert furnace was just in full blast by this point as we're into the afternoon. And we're like, um, maybe we should go back. <laughs> so off we went, and we started um, getting back. And it was much hotter on the way back than it was on the way in. We had no water. We were starting to get dehydrated. Um, I know my dad was worried. He was playing it off as if he wasn't. We would go for a little while and like, you know, there were these little scrub bushes that were just every once in a while dotting and they'd throw like, you know, just you know, 18 inches of shade and we'd stop every now and then and huddle under one of those for about five to seven minutes to just cool down as much as you could and then do the next little thing. Eventually, by the grace of God, we made it back to the car and we were just like done. I mean, we were overheated, we were totally dehydrated and there's no water in the car. All that was there was a half-full thermos of now lukewarm coffee that my dad had brewed and drunk half of that morning, and that was it. So he took a swig of it, and he gave the rest to me. He's like, you want this? Sure, it's wet. So I gulped it, and in my brain, I was going, that's disgusting. Are you, do people drink this stuff? It's gross. And I expected myself to just like want to spit it out. Oddly enough, my body gave exactly the opposite reaction. The, the physical impulse to gulp liquid down was so strong, I don't think I could have stopped myself from drinking it if I had wanted to, and part of me wanted to. But I just chugged, gulped, and finished off the little cup, and he just poured the rest in, and I gulped that. I could not stop. Then it's like, oh, is the car going to start? The car started. By the grace of God, we made it out of that, and it was many, many years later that we admitted to even telling this story because we trusted our eyes and our sense of distance, but they had deceived us. They trusted us, or we trusted them, rather, uh, and it almost cost us dearly. The reason I say that's a fitting introduction to the book of Galatians is that's what this book is really all about. We've spent this fall as a church looking at who we are as a church. We started with three Sundays in September where we talked about our whole vision to be a church of disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. That is God's call in all of our lives and our church's role is to equip each member to do that. That's who we are. That's what we're about. And then we spent five Sundays in October looking at the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Who we are at our core doctrinally. What do we believe and what has God called us to? What are we discipling each other? in two. And it's a fitting way to now end out the rest of this fall by looking at the New Testament book of Galatians, because it, more than any other single book of the Bible, captures the core issues of the faith that were at stake during the Reformation, but that they're also relevant today. They still ring as true and relevant as ever. If you've got the book of Galatians open, I want to encourage you to read just the first few verses. It's an introduction to the whole letter. And what we're going to do this morning is just I'm going to offer a couple of comments that kind of introduce the whole book of Galatians, this letter, that will sort of frame where we're going, and we'll spend the bulk of our time actually looking at chapter 1 this morning. The introduction, uh, the Apostle Paul writing this to churches in Galatia reads as follows, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, 
not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We'll pause there for a moment because in that introduction to this letter, the Apostle Paul strikes all of the key notes that he's going to develop for the rest of the thing, the rest of the entire letter. So it's a good place to pause and kind of frame, offer a couple comments that sort of frame our whole look at the book of Galatians. There are two real notes here that he strikes that help us understand the point of the book, and I put them together in a sentence. This is kind of my initial take at summarizing what's the message of this book in a single sentence. Um, You could probably do better than this, but this is my first shot. It's basically this. Stay true to the one and only gospel, which alone can bring you life. That's really what the whole book of Galatians is about. Stay true to the one and only gospel, because there's only one, because it alone can bring you life. We see kind of both statements there. There's one and only gospel, and it alone can bring you life in this introduction. Uh, Verse 1, he says the message that he preaches, the gospel, comes from God. You notice how he he almost interrupted his own flow of thought right right out of the gate there. He says, Paul, I'm an apostle. I'm sent with a message, not from man or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He wants everybody to know that his message comes from God. It's going to be a major theme in everything we see. And then down in verse 4, he makes it clear that when Jesus gave himself up, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins... He did that to deliver us from this present evil age. That is the only way we can escape eternal death and escape the corruption of this world is through the sacrifice of Jesus. Only the gospel can bring you life. Now, there's a reason that he's saying all of this. And let me just make one brief comment about kind of the the historical background of the the letter of Galatians because it will help us understand some things in this book that are distinctive. They're a little bit unique among New Testament letters. Uh, This one is structured a little bit different than a lot of Paul's other letters, a lot of the other New Testament books, and there's a reason why. The Apostle Paul had traveled to Galatia, which was a region of uh, what they called Asia back then. It's Asia Minor now, or the modern-day nation of Turkey. In this map up here, Galatia is that kind of elongated S-shaped dark green blotch kind of in the upper center. That whole region was known as Galatia, and there were several towns in it. Uh, The arrows on the map here are tracing the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey, which is recorded in the New Testament book of Acts. He went to Galatia, visited several cities there, preached the gospel, people became Christians, he organized them into churches, he stayed with them a little while to get them going, and then he left. He would move on to the next town. Well, after he left these Galatian churches, after he was gone, certain people came in and they started undermining the gospel in these churches by teaching the members of these churches that they had to start obeying everything in the Old Testament if they were going to be Christians. Now, most of these people in this part of the world probably weren't Jewish. They didn't necessarily have a background in the Old Testament. They weren't super familiar with what it meant or what it said, like a lot of Jewish boys and girls who would have grown up in in the synagogue would have known. But up here in Galatia, most of the, the Christians in the churches weren't super familiar with the Old Testament. And so they had come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and their Savior. And then the Apostle Paul leaves and these other guys come in and say, well, did Paul teach you about, uh, for example, male circumcision? It's clearly commanded in the Old Testament. It's what God commanded for the ancient Israelites. 
So if you believe God's word, then you better be doing that. And then there's all of these ritual feast days that you're supposed to observe throughout the year, all clearly commanded of the ancient Israelites in the Old Testament. So if you're going to be a Christian and listen to God's word, you better start doing all that too. And they're like, Paul never told us any of that. And he says, yeah, I know. I know. You got to watch out for that guy, Paul. We've got the rest of the word of God and you need to start following it. And these people are like, oh gosh, maybe we're missing something. Okay, that's the, that's the issue. That's the situation. Now, the Apostle Paul, who's not there, hears what's going on, and he wrote this letter to correct those false ideas. And in the process, he marks out for us the core of the gospel with unusual clarity and forcefulness. Kind of back to the main sort of message of Galatians, I would say probably the most distinctive characteristics of this book, even as compared to other uh, New Testament letters, is its unusual level of clarity and urgency. There's a forcefulness to it. The clarity, Galatians spells out the difference between the gospel of Jesus and all other world religions, all other philosophies of life with greater and more pointed clarity than anything else in the Bible. It doesn't say anything that isn't said anywhere else. The message of the Bible is consistent, but they come together with precise, laser-like precision in this book. The Bible, when we read this book of Galatians, wants us to know what is the gospel of Jesus and what is it not. How is it unique among philosophies of life? So there's great clarity here, but there's also great urgency. The tone of this letter is urgent, and the language is strong even occasionally harsh, and we're going to see that here even in chapter 1. The Apostle Paul's life was dedicated to spreading the gospel of Jesus. So he loved the gospel of Jesus, but he also loved the people in these churches who were now being led astray by these other folks who were there when he was not. So both his love for the gospel and his love for the people prompt him to write with an unusual level of urgency and passion. These are not the words of the staid, cold, clinical theologian or the dry professor. These are the words of a mama bear whose cubs are being threatened, and she's going to go to war to protect them. So why Galatians? Last thing we'll say kind of in, uh, in introduction to the book, and then we'll dive into chapter one. Why even study this book? What, what do we get out of it? And why study it now at Harvest Community Church? I think the reason we need to study it is for both of those reasons up there. It's clarity and it's urgency. My hope, my prayer, is that through these next six Sundays together that we will be in Galatians, that they would light the fires of Jesus' gospel in our hearts so that we would hold God's true message with discernment and clarity on the one hand, because the world we live in today is in every bit as desperate a need of the clarity of the gospel as the first century world of the Apostle Paul was. But having held the gospel with clarity, I pray that our study of this book would then fan those flames so that we commend the gospel to one another and to our community with an urgency and an unparalleled passion. Because the world needs that too, and God has put us here to do it. With that in mind, uh, let's dive into the rest of chapter one here. We're going to basically take a chapter a week uh, with one break throughout this series for our global missions and outreach weekend. We're going to take a chapter a week. So this morning, we're going to finish out chapter one and kind of see where the Apostle Paul takes us. This is one of those distinctive chapters. Uh, the remainder of chapter one, starting in verse six and going all the way to the end, breaks down neatly into kind of two parts. 
uh, verses 6 to 10, which Pastor Draith read for us earlier in the service, is kind of the main point. It's the call to not abandon the one true gospel. That's really the message. Don't abandon the one true gospel. And then the remainder of the chapter, the Apostle Paul from verse 11 to the end, makes the argument that his gospel is the true gospel because it came from God, not man. And we'll get there in a moment and see not only what that, why that was important in the first century when this was originally written, but why it's still important today. So that's where we're going for the rest of our time this morning. First of all, the command, don't abandon the one true gospel, starting in verses 6 and the beginning of verse 7. Paul writes to these churches, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there actually is another gospel, but there's some people who are feeding you a truckload of lies. Sorry, I paraphrased that last part. Notice he dives right in with no personal connection, no warm greeting, uh, no, how you guys doing? It's been a while, miss you, hope to get back up there and see you someday, which by the way are all things he said to other churches in other New Testament letters, so it would not be unusual to have him say that here in this letter. In fact, it's almost more unusual that he doesn't say anything personal. He just dives right in after a brief introduction and he says, what in the world are you guys letting happen in your church? You're abandoning the one true gospel. But notice he doesn't just say, so you see that urgency right away, but he doesn't just say um, you're abandoning the gospel Look what he said carefully, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting, what? What does it say? Him. Him. I notice, I'm, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The him there is, is God. He does not first and foremost say, why are you guys abandoning the true gospel? He says, why are you abandoning God? This is shocking. He's talking to a church full of Christian people. These are people who have given their lives to following God. And he says, you're abandoning God. What? No, we're not. We love God. We're the church. We go to church all the time. We're God people. He says, no, no, you're abandoning God. Because you're abandoning the only true gospel. To abandon the gospel of God is to abandon God himself. Why, why would he say that? How can you make that connection? Well, if we think about it for a moment, the logic is sound, and it actually makes sense. There's no other possible conclusion. After all, the gospel means the good news of God. It's the message of God. What is the gospel? What's the good news? It's simply this. The gospel message is that God became man in Jesus Christ, and Jesus, the God-man, died in my place on the cross to pay for my sins, something that I could not do. And so he then offers me salvation, freedom from the guilt of my sin, freely. It's free to me. It was a tremendous cost to him, but he paid the cost, so he offers it freely to me. That's the good news. That's the gospel. So, relying 100% on Jesus' death to pay for my sins is the only way to be reunited with God. That is the clear and consistent message with the Bible. My sin cuts me off from God. I can't take care of my sin on my own. Thankfully, Jesus comes and takes care of it for me. So there's only one way for my sin to be done away with and for me to be with God forever in heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. Now, in these Galatian churches, if they started then adding the Old Testament regulations to Jesus' death, yeah, you've got to believe Jesus died for your sins, but now you also have to be circumcised and keep the feast laws and do all of this other stuff in the Old Testament, well, now you no longer have the gospel of Jesus. 
you've added something to it which makes the whole package totally different than the original package. It's no longer totally free. It's no longer totally grace. It's part Jesus' grace and part your efforts. It's no longer the gospel. Verse 7 says there is no other gospel. You see, guys, this isn't just academic or theological. This is intensely personal. The Bible is telling us in no uncertain terms to cut myself off from the one true gospel is to cut myself off from God himself. No matter how many other causes I support, no matter how good a person I am, no matter how often I come to church, no matter how sincere I am, if I believe some message other than God's message, I'm cut off from God himself. The only way to be united with God for all eternity is to rely 100% on the pathway that he himself has provided for us in Jesus. In other words, it's to take Jesus as he is, as he has revealed himself. Anytime somebody starts talking to you about what Jesus means to me or the Jesus I believe in as opposed to the Jesus that's actually in the Bible, friends, run for the hills. Just go. People are entitled to their opinions if they want to believe it, but that doesn't make it the gospel. The Jesus that can save your life is the one who revealed himself in Scripture. And and that's why there's urgency here. You see that urgency down in verse 10. He says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? The false gospel these people were teaching is not only an affront to God, which is enough of a problem, but the eternal destinies of countless numbers of people hang in the balance. And so the Apostle Paul in verses 8 and 9 pronounces a curse on those who would thus lead people astray, people who knew the Old Testament and should have known better, people who looked at the gospel of Jesus and said, no, it's not good enough. We're going to improve it and repackage it and say this is God's real message, even though it was their own message. And they pawn that message off on unsuspecting people who don't know any better, who then believe them and their eternal destiny is hanging in the balance. The Apostle Paul, there's urgency. He says, this is, this is critical stuff. I mean, I see he's praying that God would take these people out. If they won't change their tune, then I pray God would take them out. That's harsh. It is harsh. And that's why in verse 10, it's like he realizes that. He, he realizes he's making enemies out of these people. But he says he'd rather be friends with God and enemies of man than vice versa. He says, I can't make everybody happy with me, so I'm going God's way. It's vital you understand the truth. Friends, there's an important lesson in this before we move on to the rest of the chapter. And it's about the importance of discernment. It's about the importance of discernment. To be clear about what the gospel is, crystal clear, laser-like precision, is a matter of eternal life and death. This is too important to, to just be even a little bit fuzzy on. Now, we live in a day and age in which laser-like precision on declarations of truth are not generally seen in a very positive light, and I understand that. Um, I feel a little bit awkward even as I proclaim these messages because I feel the pressure of my own culture saying, oh, oh, so here we go. You're going to be one of those big doctrine guys, right? You know, these cranky Christians who think that their beliefs are the truth and everybody else has to change and they're just beating everybody else down because they're arrogant and they're stupid. And like, really, is that what God is calling us to? And we, as a culture, we sort of like hate that stuff. We hate people who actually think they're right. Well, we at least hate it when they think they're right. I mean, if they think they're right, as long as they're willing to say, well, that's true for me, I can live with it. But once somebody says that's completely true, ah, there's something in us that just goes, no, we react against that. But friends, on this issue, that's exactly what the Bible is saying. And if the Bible is right, this is too important 
to just be offended by. Now, that doesn't mean that every point of theology is worth contending for or offending for at the same level. There are certainly a lot of secondary theological issues that we uh, can have what you might call intramural debates about as Christians. Um, Lots of examples of this. I mean, what exactly the uh, millennium of Revelation chapter 20 refers to would fall into this category. Clearly, it refers to a time period. Which time period? That's a matter of debate among Christians. Uh, I'm right, but you can be wrong about that. And it's okay, right? It's okay because nobody's going to hell if you get that one wrong. So we can debate about that, and that one's okay. Or the example of um, the debates that we have as Baptists with our Presbyterian friends over what the Bible teaches about the role of the elders and the congregation in making decisions in church life. Baptists and Presbyterians tend to see that differently, and that's why we organize our churches a little bit differently. And, and yet both are grounding arguments in Scripture, and we can and should and do have healthy discussions and debates about what the Bible really means. And all that's okay, because nobody's going to hell over that one. And we could go on and on with that list. So there are plenty of things in theology that, that aren't life or death issues. That doesn't mean that they're unimportant. It just means that nobody's eternal destiny is at stake on those issues. But friends, that's not true of the gospel. It's not true of the gospel. If you get the gospel wrong, you've got nothing, which is why the Apostle Paul is so urgent that they get it right. And it's why we should be urgent too. I want to suggest that we should guard against the pluralistic assumptions of our day that tend to assume by default that all perspectives are equally valid. Well, sometimes they probably are, and sometimes they're not. The Bible's very clear. When it comes to the issue of the gospel, it's not one of those cases. And if we say that all perspectives are uh, equally valid when they're not, it can kill you. Not every point of theology is worth contending or offending for, but some are, and the nature of the gospel is at the top of that list. Friends, I aspire to be a man who will endure endless ridicule and who would even lay his life down for the truth of the gospel. That one's worth contending for. That one's worth stating even if it's offensive because it's clear and God loves people and wants them to be saved. We can't be fuzzy on this. Now that leads us right into the second um, section, really from verse 11 down to the rest of the chapter. It's, it's an unusual, it's a distinctive discussion from the Apostle Paul about his own conversion experience. And it's there for a reason. It's there for a reason. In verses 11 and 12, he kind of makes his second key point. The first point was don't abandon the true gospel. And the second point is, okay, the true gospel is the one I gave you, not the one these other guys are peddling. And now that gets into the question of, okay, how do I know that the one you gave me, Paul, is the right one? How do I know? If there's only one true gospel and it's really this life and death important thing, well then how can I be sure that the gospel message I'm believing is the right gospel? And Paul's answer to that question is very simple. Because the gospel I gave you, I received directly from God himself. That's his answer. How do we determine that? That's what we're going to get into for the rest of this time together. How do I know whose message to trust? His key point is he says he didn't receive the gospel message from any person, even recognized first century Christian authorities, but rather he received it directly from God. And so starting in verse 13 and on down, he kind of tells a little bit of his own biographical journey. 
He, he says, I, I used to be a Pharisee. I used to persecute the church. I had this road to Damascus experience. Many of you have read about in Acts chapter 9, I believe it is, where Jesus Christ just literally accosts him on the road to Damascus and, and he converts and becomes a Christian and that changes his life. And he picks up the story from there. In uh, verses 13 to 17, he describes how for the first three years after his conversion to Christ, he never went to the one recognized church that existed at this point in history, which was down in Jerusalem. By the way, at this point in history, Christianity was still a brand new thing. You had some churches in and around Jerusalem, and you had the recognized apostles, guys like Peter and James, people who were mostly Jesus' original disciples. So they had heard from and talked with Jesus themselves, and they taught everybody uh, what the gospel was. They were the one recognized church, but most people in the world thought Christianity was some weird offshoot cult that had sprung out of Judaism. And so they didn't really take it seriously. And here's the Apostle Paul, and he says, when I became a Christian, I didn't go to the only guys who actually knew the gospel and learned from them. In fact, for three years, I went off by myself. I studied the Bible because he knew it intently as a Jewish Pharisee. I studied the Old Testament to make sure that the message I received with God lined up with what I already knew was the word of God. And then, starting in verse 18 and down to the rest of the chapter, he explains how after three years, when he did finally go up to Jerusalem, he says to visit Cephas, that's Peter, um, he says, I only stayed there 15 days. I was only there for a couple of weeks. And I hardly saw anybody. He says, I only saw Peter and James, those two um, apostles. I didn't even talk to any of the other apostles. And even the people in the churches in Judea, which is the region surrounding Jerusalem, those people, they didn't even know who I was. They'd heard about my conversion story and they were, they were praising God because he had changed my life, but they never saw my face. In other words, he's going to great lengths to tell the Galatian churches, I'm not part of this Jerusalem group. I didn't validate my message with Peter the apostle, and I didn't get training or instruction from any of the churches in Judea. Don't believe my message, in other words, because it came from Judea or from Peter. Believe it because it came from God. Now, why is he so intent on disassociating himself from Peter and Jesus' other disciples? That seems like a funny thing to do, doesn't it? If you're running around saying, I've got a new message, I want everybody to believe that it's true, you'd probably want to go out of your way to, to build up your case by, you know, citing some credible sources. Here's the most credible guys in the world, the guys that hung around with Jesus themselves. My message is the same as their message, so you should believe me. It's a way of kind of like building the resume of your own message, right? And yet here's Paul doing exactly the opposite. Why would he do that? Why would he want to disassociate himself from Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem? Well, it's very clear that he is responding at length here to specific charges that were leveled against him by these people who are spreading the false gospel in Galatia. They tried to besmirch Paul's reputation in order to gain a hearing for their own ideas amongst the non-Jewish congregations in Galatia that didn't have as much knowledge of the Old Testament. And so they're like, well, wait a minute, Paul's our guy. Paul's the one we trust. And so they're like, well, if we're going to get these people to believe us, we've got to knock Paul down a few rungs. And so they were saying all sorts of nasty things about Paul to say, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Listen to us. We're the guys that really know God and his word. And it seems very likely that one of the ways they were doing this was to make Paul guilty by association with Peter and the churches in Jerusalem. It was common for these guys who were Jewish themselves to say, the Christians are an offshoot cult of Judaism. Don't listen to them, listen to us. And so some of these people were coming along and saying, yeah, yeah, okay, maybe we can even tolerate the idea that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but the word of God is clear, the commands of God are clear in the Old Testament, you still got to follow 
God. And these guys are teaching you, you don't have to follow the Old Testament law anymore. That's wrong. That's heresy. Don't listen to those knuckleheads. They're a cult. They're freaks. Don't listen to them. And by the way, guess what? Your, your, your beloved Paul, he's one of them. He's one of them. Everything he learned, he learned from them. He's part of the same group. So they're kind of trying to tar and feather him, as it were, make him guilty by association so that the people would stop listening to Paul and start listening to them. And at this point, the case he is making here makes a lot more sense. What he's saying is that Peter received the message of the gospel directly from Jesus himself, because Peter was one of Jesus' followers. And so now he is saying, guess what? I also received it directly from Jesus himself. In fact, when I finally did see Peter, I came as an equal. He didn't teach me anything, and I didn't teach him anything. I just said, here's the gospel. And Peter said, yep, that's the same gospel I got. And we shook hands and said, right on, run the same team, go forth and be blessed. That was it. He said, I didn't get my message from Peter. You shouldn't believe me because it came from the authorized source. You should believe me because it came from God himself. So that was Paul's situation. But what do we do with this? The discussion continues, but that's the end of chapter one. So we're going to pause walking through the book here and pick it up next time in chapter two. But I want to spend our last few minutes together talking about the issues that this discussion has already raised, not only for people in the first century, but they're the exact same issues that are relevant for the 21st century. How do I, as a person, come to trust and believe what's right? Every one of us is building our lives on something, some philosophy of life, some major religious system. How do I know that the one I'm building my life on is actually right and true? Well, there's basically three possibilities. The first is the one that's squarely in the crosshairs in this discussion in Galatians chapter 1. I can build my trust based on other people. I can trust the words of other people who I deem to be in positions um, of of authority. Uh, So, for example, most uh, major world religions operate this way. Uh, Consider Islam as one example. Uh, The prophet of Islam, Muhammad, Uh, purportedly went off to a cave at a point in his life, a a retreat, and received directly from God, Allah, uh, words, a message from God. And he wrote that down in the Quran, and it is said to sort of um, abrogate or supersede or trump any other previous messages from God. This is the true word of God. It came from Muhammad, and Muhammad is the prophet of Allah, so therefore you must believe it. To be a Muslim is to submit to that word unquestioningly. It's built on kind of an authorized representative kind of system. God spoke directly to the prophet, and so you believe it. To even question whether or not it's true is already to set yourself apart from God. That's, that's anathema. And it's not just Islam. Totally different religion operates very much the same way with Mormonism. Much more recent in history, uh, another man, Joseph Smith, essentially had a similar experience, was off by himself for a while and purportedly received, according to the teachings of the Mormon church, a direct revelation from God that was given only to Joseph Smith and it abrogates or supersedes the Bible and all other revelations. So those things are still good to the extent that they agree with this one, but this is the message of God and your job is to submit to it. Now, if you're a Mormon, uh, of whom many, many of whom I know personally, wonderful, wonderful people, the teachings of their church, though, are... Your job is to submit to the interpretation of the church leaders who are the only ones authorized to interpret what God told Joseph Smith. So believe it because we said it and we're the authorized party. And so my, 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 my confidence is, is banked on those people and their position. 
It's not difficult to see why people during the Protestant Reformation loved the book of Galatians. Martin Luther spent more time reading and writing about the book of Galatians than any other book in the Bible, even more than Romans. That's not hard to see why, because these issues were at the heart of the Reformation. Is the Pope in the Catholic Church the authorized representative? Yes, you've got the scriptures and you've got all these teachings of tradition, but we need somebody to sort that out for us and come up with the authorized interpretation and tell us what to believe. And there's only a very few people throughout history that are in that position. Those are the people you trust. All of these are systems that are based on trusting man's authority, the designated representative. They have the official interpretation, and our job is to bank our lives on that because they're in the position that we're not. This manifests itself other ways too. Sometimes it's just a matter of like, I don't believe in a major world religion, but I just kind of, I go with my family and my friends. This is kind of their philosophy of life. This is what they believe. So that's what I go with. I, I was raised Presbyterian, so I'm Presbyterian. I was raised Baptist, so I'm Baptist. I was raised Catholic, so I'm Catholic. I just, I go with what I was given and I'm just kind of going with the flow. So many different ways of saying, I'm trusting somebody else to make this call for me. Now, the question is, is, is that what the Apostle Paul is saying here in chapter 1 of Galatians? Because a superficial read-through makes it kind of sound like he is. Like he's saying, don't trust those guys, trust me, because I got the word from God. Well, that sounds like Muhammad at first. Sounds like Joseph Smith. Is that what the Apostle Paul is saying? Just trust me because I got the word from God. End of discussion. Well, we know that's not what he's saying for several reasons. Uh, I don't have time to go through them all, so I'll just give you one. <laughs> because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the very same Apostle Paul explicitly grounds the claims of the gospel in verifiable historical events, namely the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says that happened, and guess what? Gazillions of people witnessed it. And then here comes the real shocking part. He says, don't take my word for it, go ask them. Go ask them. He invites scrutiny of the claims of the gospel. He says, figure out, become convinced for yourself that this is true. Don't just take my word for it. This really happened, and there's evidence for it. Become convinced yourself. And in Acts chapter 17, when he blew through um, a town called Berea and preached the gospel, the Bereans were uh, commended because they took the claims of Paul when he was preaching the gospel, and they compared them to the Old Testament and said, does this match up? And they found out that it did, and that's why they believed. Yes, they heard his message, but they didn't just take his word for it. They went and verified it themselves. And he says, good for you guys. I want everybody to do that. So, no, he's not simply saying, trust me because I got the message from God. What he's actually saying is the opposite. Don't trust me because you think I got the message from Peter. It doesn't matter what Peter said. And by the way, I didn't get my message from him anyway. Peter got his message from Jesus. I got my message from Jesus. That's the message you want to trust. The one from Jesus. Go verify that independently for yourselves. Okay, so if we're rejecting this kind of human authority thing, then what is the Bible saying? Is every, every man a law unto himself? Every woman an interpreter unto herself? We all just decide for ourselves what we think is true? We don't trust any authorities, we trust in ourselves. That's our second option, right? The other person I can trust is me. And there may be no more quintessentially American choice than this. I mean, that's practically the cultural air that we breathe, Right? We all decide for ourselves. Decide what's true for you based on what you are passionate about and live that out. Only you can make that call for yourself. I mean, that's who we are as a culture. The idea is sort of that we have some kind of an internal compass 
you know, that, that we, we rely on, or GPS, if you prefer. And we just need, we need to follow it. We need to trust it because our heart inside of us, it will guide us to what is right for us. I just gotta, I gotta not listen to other people. I need to listen to myself. And so if we apply this to the Bible, it creates kind of a, kind of a theological wild, wild west, you know? where the law isn't really well established. So everybody's kind of got their own 44 at their hip and everyone's a law unto himself. You stake out your own little territory. You defend it yourself. Nobody else is going to come help you. You got to be self-sufficient, sort of theologically. You got to decide what you believe. And you may decide you believe something totally different than the next person. You may read the Bible in a way totally different than the next guy. And that doesn't matter. You just got to decide for yourself. By the way, during the Reformation era, this was one of the big arguments that Catholic scholars used against the Protestant reformers. They said, you guys are challenging the interpretive authority of the papacy, of the Pope. If you get rid of the Pope, you're just going to have a theological wild, wild west. I don't think they called it that back then because the wild west hadn't happened, but, you know, bear with me here. It's just, they said, it's going to be every man for himself, every woman for herself. It's going to be chaos. Nobody's going to know what God thinks because everybody's just going to have their own take. That's, that, that's total chaos. It clearly doesn't honor God. So, they argued, we need to have the authorized interpreter. So, is that actually Paul's argument here? Is he saying, don't trust in people, just figure it out yourself? Well, certainly that's not what he's saying because his whole point in this chapter is that there's only one gospel. There's only one, and you need to get that right. It's, it's not a matter of, of, of interpretation or personal opinion. He's saying there's only one that's true, and you need to become convinced of its truth. So it doesn't seem like the Bible is presenting either a system whereby we build our, 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 our sense of, of what we believe on the authority of authorized representatives, nor do we just go figure it out on our own. It's sort of rejecting both extremes. So what then do we have? Well, fortunately, there's a third way. And it's the one that's being advanced not only in this book of Galatians, but all throughout the scriptures. He says, trust God. You don't want to trust man, and you don't want to trust yourself. You want to trust God. Now, how does that work? Well, in this point, there's at least two major things to emphasize. First, the Bible is seen as the sole authority. God's words, God's message are contained in one place and one place only. They're contained in this book. So that's the first point. But the second point is that the community of faith throughout the ages, we all check and compare notes with one another as we seek to correctly understand this. So there's this recognition that there's no one person who tells me what I'm supposed to believe, but it's not just up to me either because I don't trust my internal GPS. Sometimes it's right, but it's never going to be always right. This is a clear rejection of this trust myself idea. The idea is the truth is found in the Bible. That's something outside of me. It's not something that I find internally by looking within. The truth is something I find by looking outside of me, by looking right here. There's a recognition that my internal GPS is faulty, so I don't trust it fully. There's a recognition that my father and I and our foolish hike across the sand dunes is sort of a, a metaphor for life. I can be really sure that I know where this thing is at and I can make it until I get there and I realize, oh my gosh, I'm about to die because I underestimated this thing. My eyes can deceive me. So I don't bank my entire destiny on them always. I use them, but I don't rely on them primarily. I need other people. So there's still uh, a highly esteemed role for teachers and leaders in this sort of biblical model of authority. No, we don't have one 
pope or one authorized interpreter. But that doesn't mean every person's an island unto him or herself. Teachers and leaders are highly esteemed. The New Testament constantly calls us to learn from gifted godly teachers, to follow godly church leaders. And even we see this in the call ourselves to become disciples who make disciples. Learn from others, but also be in the process, church member, of taking what you know and passing it on to other Christians so that they might learn too. The need to learn from one another is all over the Bible. So this is a clear rejection of the just go figure it out and be your own independent authority idea. And yet, on the other hand, we don't just have a single prophet, pope, pastor, or priest who alone determines the truth, and we just dutifully submit to it either. We learn from multiple sources. First and foremost, your local church pastors and elders. That's why the church is so important to God. These are people, the Bible says, who God has specifically gifted and equipped to teach the Bible so that you and I will be able to understand it clearly when we open it. Because if you haven't noticed, a lot of the Bible is not self-explanatory. But like anything else, once you start understanding the background, you realize, oh, I get this. Thanks. I needed somebody to come teach me how to read this thing. So that's why there are local church elders who are called to teach God's word to God's congregation that they are in community with and doing life together with. So first and foremost, we have our local church pastors and elders. But we also have other pastors and elders and Bible teachers through books and in our internet world, uh, even more so, the, the teachings of other good, godly church leaders are unprecedented levels of, of accessibility nowadays. And, and we listen to those things. They matter to us if we're following the Bible's model for authority. And I would be remiss if I didn't remind us like C.S. Lewis did of what he called chronological snobbery, which is a great phrase. (laughs) Chronological snobbery. That basically means when I think everything old is bad and everything modern is good. He says you want to learn from good Bible teachers today, but you also want to recognize there have been good Bible teachers all throughout history. And in fact, they have a perspective that we sometimes miss and it will create blind spots for us. And so you not only listen to pastors and elders and Bible teachers and authors today, but you actually go read the old um, creeds of the ancient church and you read dead theologians. Dead guys are often really smart. And all of this becomes a super high value within the Christian community. Why? Because we recognize that there's no one source that we just submit to. I have to become convinced of what God says myself, but we also recognize I can't do that alone. I need other wise, godly people helping me. So I look at the Bible, and then I listen to other people. And if I agree or disagree, I say, why am I agreeing or disagreeing? Either you're wrong or I'm wrong or we're both wrong. I don't know, but let's dig in and find it out. And let's read people and let's learn. You see, the very best Bible teachers don't just say, thus saith the Lord. So do it. The very best Bible teachers say, Thus saith the Lord. See? And they point you to it. And they show you so you can see yourself in the Bible. Is this guy right or is he not? Do I need that teacher? Absolutely. Do I trust him completely? Absolutely not. We need to be equipped to understand God's word because that's where we find the gospel that can save our lives. Friend, let me end this way. There is only one message worth banking your life on, and that's a message that comes directly from God. And in a world with a million conflicting messages, it can be very difficult to sort out which one's coming from God or not. 
But in Hebrews chapter 1, the Bible tells us that God has spoken through his prophets in the Old Testament and he has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. All of the words and actions of both of those groups of people we have contained right here for us in this book. This is God's message. No wonder the reformers made such a big deal out of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority. May God sharpen our discernment as we lean on the collective wisdom of God's people throughout the ages to help us see the gospel he's revealed so clearly in his word and in his son, Jesus Christ. Because, friends, there is no other gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the privilege of being in your house, an opportunity to build relationships with men and women who love you and are earnestly seeking as we ourselves are to understand what you've said, to understand its implications, and to live it out. And Father, I pray increasingly that our church would become more and more that community, that we would be um, a place and we would be a people who are constantly taking one another into the word of God, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, loving one another, applying the word of God to our lives, being open to what other people think about our interpretations. Because we recognize on the one hand, we are never right about everything, but we also recognize how vitally important it is that we become convinced of what you yourself have said in your word. And so, Father God, I pray that you would lead us through as we study your word here to be a people of the book together. In Christ's name and for his glory, we ask. Amen.